This is hell. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. And this time we find the law undermining students' constitutionally protected right to privacy through enhanced surveillance and security systems that are being installed by the increasingly profitable school security sector. The more than a billion dollar a year industry is now not only filling schools with all sorts of technological fixes to the problems of mass shooting, but they're also setting their sights on students' after-school activities online as well, meaning today's students rarely experience any time when they're actually free from school. But look, it all makes sense if it keeps students safe from the epidemic of school shootings that is plaguing the United States. However, what if I were to tell you, as our guest will today, that mass shootings in the United States are not increasing, that in fact school shootings in the States have been decreasing and for quite some time, back in April of 1999, shortly before the shooting at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, the Centers for Disease Control released a report stating that mass shootings in schools have been declining since the early 1990s. Nobody could believe it, so much so that all the major network and cable news outlets were actually reporting the school shootings were increasing when they were not. They were not increasing, and for months, none of the outlets corrected themselves. Today, we still have this impression, this feeling that school shootings are, again, increasing as they always are. But again, they are not. That pattern of mass school shootings has continued to decline, dating all the way back again to the early 90s. Schools are one of the very safest places for young people. However, that hasn't stopped the school security sector from imposing a police state on student life. But not all student life is policed in the same way. For instance, in white schools, police and security target perceived threats to students from outside of the school, protecting them from outsiders who may do the students harm. But in schools that have predominantly black student populations, the police are there to protect the outside world from the threat posed by black students. In a few minutes, we'll discuss the overly policed education that is commonplace inside and outside today's schools when we will be speaking with Chelsea Barabas, who wrote the reallifemag.com article, Hall Monitors, rather than protect Kids, increased surveillance in schools, targets students of color for exclusionary discipline. Chelsea is a doctoral candidate in the Media Arts and Sciences program at MIT, where she examines the spread of algorithmic decision-making in the U.S. criminal legal system. Formerly, she was a technology fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and a research scientist for the AI Ethics and Governance Initiative at the MIT Media Lab. You can follow Chelsea on Twitter at chels underscore bar, that's C-H-E-L-S underscore B-A-R. And you can find out more about Chelsea at her website, chelsbar.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, live streaming host, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. It's Thursday and producing is Alexander Jerry. 
Alex, did you attend the still unofficial This Is Hell office hours, our still unsanctioned meet and greet that is really a drink and think downstairs at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Did you attend last night? Uh, yeah, it was kind of uneventful, so I'm not really selling it too hard on this one. Yeah, it's, uh, pro- oh, it's freezing outside. I just wanted to say, do we find out yet the person who sent us all this food? Do we have their name? Yeah. Oh, it was Erica X. Eisen from oh, uh, Hypocrite Reading. Erica, thank you for this high mountain raw honey, which I am eating back here with a spoon. What do you think? Uh, is wonderful. So I want to say congratulations to the people of Kyrgyzstan for this beautiful honey, and congratulations on winning the Apamani International Beekeeping Congress Award gold medal in 2013, 2015, and 2017. Well deserved. Uh, you can actually find that. We never do this. We never talk about a product or give you a product name or anything like that. Who's the maker of this again? What's the name of the company that's on there? Arashan, High Mountain Raw Honey from Kyrgyzstan. And so if you live in the Chicago area and you are interested in it, we were very lucky to have Erica find a place out in Arlington Heights that would distribute it here in the United States. She was able to save $150 on postage just by sending it to us here in the States, or getting it here in the United States and sent over to us, but you can find this raw mountain honey at Cermak, and that's where I purchased Alex's, Alex's jar because we already made a major dent in the one that Erica had sent didn't us. go to the Tian Shan Mountain region? No, I did not, and uh, it is absolutely fantastic in a smoothie as far as replacing any other kind of commercial honey. It really is, is something that's quite different. So the other day after the show, Alex, when returning to my home, which is only a block away, I gotta ask you if you've received the same thing. I found a door hanger that reads, only we can stop the Chicago Police Department. The ECPS referendum is supported by the following organizations. They then list nearly a couple dozen organizations, including uh, Grassroots Alliance on Police Accountability, Black Lives Matter Chicago, the Community Renewal Society, SEIU, Black Alliance for Peace, Good Kids, Mad City, the Jewish Council on Urban Affairs, the Inner City Muslim Action Network, Trinity United Church of Christ, Chicago Women Take Action, the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights, the Chicago Torture Justice Center, and many, many more. The back of the door hanger asks for you to support the ECPS referendum for community control of police Ordinance number 02021-2868, ECPS standing for Empowering Communities for Public Safety. Apparently, City Council recently passed an ordinance to establish a new police accountability system driven by people according to the door hanger. It it establishes a citywide commission with power over key aspects of police accountability, including the power to hire and fire the head of the Civilian Office of Police Accountability and to determine... Uh, you know, uh, police policy for the Chicago Police Department. But apparently, that's not enough, as the group is trying to get a referendum on the ballot that will make this commission directly elected and expand its powers to include the power to negotiate police union contracts to determine the CPD budget and to hire and fire the police superintendent and members of the police board. They ask that you call your alderman here in Chicago today and demand they support the ECPS referendum. The following day, they then dropped off a flyer. So on consecutive days, we got a door hanger and a flyer asking we support this ordinance, which has already passed city council and put it to a referendum for a vote. This is not to say that 
if it was passed in a referendum, it would actually become a law observed by the police. We've seen referendums passed and no action is taken on them for a very long time. For instance, Illinois voters passed a referendum on recreational marijuana, and it took several years for the state to finally turn that into a law, but eventually it did happen. But here's the thing, I've talked to friends who live in, let's say, better neighborhoods, more expensive neighborhoods, where I cannot afford to live, and they tell me they have not had any door hangers or leaflets dropped off at their homes. So if you're in Chicago, email me at chuck at thisishell.com and tell me if you are, or are not receiving these flyers and tell me what area of town you live in, what neighborhood you live in, because I'm starting to wonder how where the public is when it comes to the city council passing an ordinance and the efforts of ECPS to make to make it so we can get this uh, referendum on the ballot. So have you seen these flyers yet, Alex? I know you live just across the border from Chicago, but have you seen any of these flyers nope. yet? See, I'm telling you, man, I've talked to people down in Bowmanville. I've talked to people in Albany Park. I've talked to people in Irving Park. I've talked to people in Uptown and Andersonville. Nobody's seeing these flyers. I haven't seen one on any of the doors here on Devon Avenue. And I'm starting to wonder if the police are doing some selective editing. But more important than citizens fighting to be free us from police abuse. Okay, this really isn't more important than that. Alex, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what did the Oracle just reveal to you? What did the Oracle just reveal to you? I think the Oracle is hanging door hangers on my house, so they just revealed to me that there's some sort of ordinance to actually rein in police abuse here in Chicago. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. The trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque, if you prefer. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to those of you who have recently supported This Is Hell and likely picked up some holiday gifts. After all, what says the holidays more than giving a gift that states this is hell? You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it at us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's Thursday show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, Jeff rings down the curtain on 2021. Alex will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Chelsea on the new age of surveillance and security in today's school schools. Again, the question from hell is, what did the Oracle just reveal to you? We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board as Alex is today, as Richard did yesterday, all you have to do is email me at chuck at We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. With shows beginning weekdays at 10 p.m., we are very flexible. And if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. If you want to start your own podcast in a soundproof studio or are a musician wants to work on your music or are working on any kind of sound project, you could use this studio if you become a staff member here on This Is Hell. This position does come with a living wage, so if you are interested in being a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We got an email from Flying Needle, who writes with their concerns about my perpetual exhaustion. Flying Needle writes, have you thought about taking up crack? It's very quick and effective. Otherwise, Qi Gong 
is an uh, ancient Chinese qi cultivation technique. Many of these breathing and moving exercises are effective in supplementing energy levels. Qi and blood tonics can also be useful. Things like ginseng, astragalus, ashwagandha, and cordyceps can boost energy. Burning mugwort, also known as moxa, on the acupuncture point stomach number 36 has also been shown to increase energy, longevity, and vitality. You could also stop having fun. Drinking, smoking weed, and orgasming are all said to deplete chi and essence. But I don't recommend that. Keep having fun. You got to live if you are low in iron. You can get that through raisins, dates, and black sesame seeds. As with most issues, I'd recommend finding a good acupuncturist. They'll ask you lots of questions, look at your tongue and feel your pulses. And if they know what they're doing, they should be able to get to the root of what is causing your fatigue. Thank you for the advice, flying needle. And wait a second, I finally figured this out. Finally dawned on me that flying needle is an acupuncturist. As for your advice, crack is overrated and not worth the side effects of addiction. But qigong and acupuncture do sound like far better ideas. Thanks again, Flying Needle. If you have anything you want to share, email us here at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. We are also asking everyone to send in their favorite episodes or interview that they heard on This Is Hell in 2021, because during the final two weeks of of 2021, we'll be playing your 10 favorite shows or interviews. We want to hear from you what your favorites were. And if we do play your suggestion, we'll personally thank you on air. Coming up, the police state in today's schools. We'll also tell you what's happening on our exclusive Patreon podcast this week, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we'll share some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, again, what did the Oracle just reveal to you? Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. Imagine going to school every day and constantly being watched by surveillance cameras. And not just any surveillance cameras, but surveillance systems that have facial recognition algorithms that supposedly measure things like aggression in order to keep kids safe. And not only cameras, but environmental sensors like live audio feeds, vape and THC detectors placed in areas that were once deemed an invasion of privacy, but are now far too common. Then there's the social media monitoring of students, even when they are not at school, monitoring that can lead to the school contacting police if they have concerns about a student. Sure, at this moment when we have just experienced yet another mass shooting at a school, it may all seem urgently necessary. But what if in reality it's not? What if schools are being turned into police states due to an overhyped and over-exaggerated fear? Here to help us have a better understanding of schools and security, Chelsea Barobas wrote the reallifemag.com article, Hall Monitors, Rather Than Protect Kids, Increase Surveillance in Schools, Targets Students of Color for Exclusionary Discipline. Welcome to This Is Hell, Chelsea. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is a fantastic article, and it made me come up with so many different questions. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You can follow Chelsea on Twitter at C-H-E-L-S underscore bar, and you can find out more about Chelsea at her website, Chelsbar. Again, that's C-H-E-L-S bar dot com. You write, over the past two decades, millions of dollars have been spent on equipping elementary and secondary school campuses with military-grade surveillance tech that promises to amplify the 
reach and efficiency of school security personnel. As costly low-tech interventions like metal detectors have fallen out of vogue, a slew of AI-powered tools have entered the market, promising to transform older surveillance systems such as closed-circuit television cameras into smart tools for proactive threat detection. For example, companies like Zero Eyes offer AI-powered software that the company claims can automatically detect the presence of a gun within seconds. So WDIV Channel 4, the NBC affiliate in Detroit's local news, reported that the November 30th Oxford High School mass shooting where three students were killed was that school is well equipped with a video surveillance system, but that the police say it is very unlikely they will be able to piece together the video to get a complete story of what actually happened. Meanwhile, the news website Bridge Michigan reported, according to the Oxford Police District, the district contacted with or contracted with Alice Alert Lockdown Inform Counter Evacuate Training Institute to provide active shooter training for district employees. The district maintains a safety committee of school officials, local public officials, parents and community members, and it employs regular patrols of school guards uh, on school grounds by school guards by Oakland County Sheriff deputies. Oxford schools are equipped with video intercom systems. Visitors to schools during uh, school hours must be buzzed in, according to the district's website, and the high school has a full-time security officer. So in your research, How often did you find enhanced surveillance of students on campus leading to safer campuses with a decreased likelihood of mass school shootings? Because it appears that Oxford High School did everything it is, quote unquote, supposed to do. You're right. Um, Oxford, in many ways, is exemplifies what we see happening all across the country right now, um, is, is that these schools have invested a lot of money, both in security personnel, as well as uh, various types of surveillance systems to keep an eye on the hallways and things like that. But in spite of all of that, we still um, see that students are able to, you know, still get inside um, these buildings with guns and, and perpetrate um, these headline grabbing events. But I think as you were mentioning earlier in the show, you know, it's also really important for us to realize that, that, that these types of incidences are extremely rare. Um, and, and as you mentioned, you know, have been going down since the 1990s. So um, the, the one question, you know, we have to ask is why, why does it, why do we have this um, feeling that, that they, they're on the rise? And, and, and part of that, I think, is what are the types of students who have, who are perpetrating these crimes and who are being targeted by them? Um, in the early 90s, it was, um, you know, uh, inner city schools, uh, a lot of gang related violence that that was related to these mass um, shootings. And today, uh, a lot of these shootings are happening in more affluent schools perpetrated by young white men and victim, you know, targeting victims who are also um, more affluent from um, from suburban families and things like that. Um, but to your question of, you know, what can we do uh, in the face of kind of um, it, it's still true that these types of events are really horrible and we want to do everything we can to prevent them. So what can be done? I think um, research has shown that, you know, that probably the most, the, the best, you know, um, safeguards we can put into place is actually increasing the, the trust uh, that students have in school-based authorities and, the, and enhancing the relationships between schools students and teachers so that communication between students and teachers is much more open students fellow students are often the people who are going to be most attuned to if another student is thinking about perpetrating one of these exceedingly rare events um, or 
is posing a threat. But often what we see is that there's not a lot of communication between students and authority figures within a school. Uh, so what, what is it that actually enhances trust in a school? It tends to be the less, you know, the less presence of law enforcement and kind of um, exclusionary discipline practices where we're, you know, expelling kids from school, suspending kids for school from minor, you know, infractions, the more likely so the, the less those things are present, the more likely trust, there's gonna be more open communication and a trust-based relationship between students and, and schools. So in a lot of ways, these initiatives that we're putting into place, putting law enforcement on campuses, equipping them with all this surveillance is actually very counterproductive uh, because it's decreasing th that the trust in that relationship. So that, yesterday I was mentioning to somebody that in uh, that there's been a decrease in the amount of mass shootings on school campuses uh, since the early 90s. That's something that we discussed back in 1999 when Columbine happened, as I was mentioning earlier on the show. Yet when I brought it up yesterday to a friend of mine, I was telling them, you know, school shootings have been in a decline. They just could not believe that how can we convince people of this fact that school shootings are in decline when the media makes it look like these school school shootings are constantly increasing right i mean you know it it, it, it also shocked me i think emotionally it doesn't make sense when you first um encounter the statistics i think the easy answer is you know let's just look up rates of, of gun violence on school campuses and, and see what those numbers are. And there are a number of really uh, clear and helpful reports that chart that out. Um, but but it doesn't it doesn't um, resonate with us at an emotional level because um, I think the there is such um, media you know coverage of these horrific incidents. And it is true that the nature of the mass shootings have changed like um, this you know, the mass shootings in which students are going into schools and shooting at random students in the hallway or in a classroom um, is what we think of when we think of mass shootings. Um, but in the 90s, we were seeing, um, you know, gun violence of a different sort. We, we saw, as I was saying before, like inner city kids, places with, um, you know, uh, issues with gang violence and things like that uh, being um, much more prevalent and being the issue that was being um, that, that was really driving those numbers. The, the big difference is that the media wasn't covering those back in the day. In, in many ways, you know, when we see black and brown kids shooting each other, we see that as kind of normal behavior, things that don't deserve news coverage. But when it's uh, a young white boy who's going into a school and shooting kids at random, and especially when those kids are also predominantly white, this is considered totally out of the norm, completely inconceivable and a horrific loss. So, so that's a big part of it is whose lives are being lost to this gun violence has, has, has shifted over time. Um, and that's part of, you know, what we're grappling with as a country is whose lives matter uh, when we're talking about things like gun violence. In WDIV Detroit's news coverage, the reporter on the scene kept saying, this is America and this is Michigan, as if to say this should not be happening here or this is what defines America in this day and age. And it sounds like you would disagree with both those premises when told this should not be happening here. The impl implication is always it should be happening somewhere else. What happens when we are told and when we believe mass shootings are somehow beneath the United States. <laughs> yeah. Quite sure what, what that new thinker meant by that. What do, what do you think he meant by that? 
I had no idea, and she kept report, repeating it over and over again, this is America and this is Michigan, as if it was somehow she was feeling shame for maybe the United States. As you point out, the number of shootings have decreased since the early 1990s. So in your opinion, to what extent mm-hmm. do mass school shootings define the United States? Geez, that's a tough question. I mean, you know, I think that's wrapped up in this question question of like, to what extent does bearing firearms define the United States? Um, and to what extent does, you know, um, these eruptions of anger, especially, I think, I think it is really important for us to continue to name that it is young white men who are, who are doing this, who are doing this type of mass shooting that we, that is grabbing the headlines today. Um, you know, uh, so I, I think that, in some ways, mass shootings are, you know, a part of a larger trend of mass shootings, such as like the Las Vegas mass shootings that wasn't done in a school, but was, you know, one of the most serious and deadly mass shootings that we've had in American history, uh, also perpetrated by an older, you know, white man. Um, I don't know. I think that's an interesting question. It's, it's beyond, you know, my, the realm of my research and my expertise, but I do think it's provocative to think about uh, tying it back to kind of like, what are the racial dynamics here? Uh, what, how is the this right to bear arms, you know, and our failure to implement things like, um, you know, uh, basic gun uh, safety uh, legislation in the wake of things like Sandy Hook, for example? How is that? What does that tell us about the deeper kind of um, state of America today? And uh, I'll just agree. Yeah, that's an interesting question. <laughs> and, and, and you're right that to date, very little evidence suggests that technologies like facial recognition, social media monitoring, and pervasive environmental sensors like live audio feeds, vape and THC detectors, aggression analysis are effective at keeping kids safe. So these all sound like very high tech and likely you know, expensive surveillance technologies, yet they also sound cost effective as a surveillance and security tool because that would automate the surveillance and security, meaning the school would not need to hire as much personnel when it comes to security. So is this kind of surveillance a huge cost to schools or is it security on the cheap as fewer security officers would be needed? It's both. You know, I think it's it's striking that this industry does continue to grow, even though 20 years ago, uh, the majority of schools in America had closed circuit tele- TV uh, cameras in their schools already. You, in some ways, you would think the market was already saturated um, in the years following ca- Columbine. But in order for this industry to grow, what they have done is get more and more high tech. And, and the rationale for that has been this idea of shifting towards prevention and preemption. Um, let's use predictive analytics. Let's use really sophisticated object analysis um, and, and, and uh, you know pervasive um, hallway monitoring and things like that, so that we can in a matter of seconds, identify a threat and diffuse it before it happens. Um, I think, you know, the trick with this though, is that the, the effectiveness of, of these types of technologies has not been demonstrated. It's very, it's also very hard to demonstrate the effectiveness of things like this because incidences of school shooting are so rare. Um, but beyond just that, you know, um, a number of these seemingly shiny new high-tech technologies are also kind of the worst version of kind of like snake oil artificial intelligence that is out here. Things like aggression analysis are, are um, you know, fraught with like, they're very loaded terms that don't end up, you know, when you really look up under the hood and see what, what these types of technologies are doing, there's a lot of really 
um, serious questions that need to be raised around the technical validity of them, whether or not we can even, you know, measure affective states of being like aggression. Um, you know, when we know that, um, you know, um, uh, that's coded as things like sometimes talking loudly and things like that, uh, that, that, um, there's a lot that needs to be unpacked to think about whether or not this is, this is even something that can be achieved. Um, things like social media monitoring, you know, it sounds like it's really high tech going through scrapings, um, data from sites like Twitter. But at the end of the day, what we're talking about is having a, a you know, a, a law enforcement officer sitting in a room reading through kids, social media posts and trying to figure out, you know, is this, is this somebody who poses a risk? It's not as high tech as it sounds. Um, but to, you know, in some ways this is very cost-effective because, you know, uh, unlike things like metal detectors, which did require one or two law enforcement personnel to be sitting by a law, by a metal detector, watching kids go through, uh, on a full-time basis. Um, these types of technologies are doing a lot of that looking, observing, um, monitoring, um, without the need of, you know, one or two or multiple law enforcement on campus. So it's both very expensive and uh, relatively less expensive than having, you know, a whole squadron of, of police on campus. So how aware are students or even their parents of the ways in which students are surveilled at school and even when they're not at school, how aware are students as well as their parents? This is one of the most troublesome kind of pieces around this is that right now we don't have strong um, expectations, norms, or laws around disclosure of um, school districts procurement of these types of technologies. So there've been a number of, of incidences in which, um, for example, students have been suspended from school because um, of something that they posted on social media. And it was only after the fact that they were suspended that they uh, it, it was disclosed why they were suspended. And, and that was the first time that those students or their parents had even heard of uh, their school doing things like social media monitoring. Um, in Texas, where I'm doing a lot of my research right now, Texas is the state that has actually spent the most money on digital surveillance in schools um, of all, all the country, all, all over the country. And, and you're, we're starting to see a growing movement of concerned parents and students who say, hey, listen, I just found out <laughs> that from this, you know, Dallas Morning News article that my school spent, a, you know, half a million dollars on, on different surveillance. Why didn't I know about this? So I think that's going to be a growing conversation is, is what are the norms around disclosing these, these types of um, the procurement of these types of systems uh, and what kind of say should and inputs should parents and students have in and how it gets used. When you mentioned expectations, I was speaking with my uh, uh, nephew a couple of years ago when he was still in high school, and he told me that uh, I asked him, you know, do your friends have these kind of like Alexa-like devices inside their homes so they can, you know, be surveilled upon at any time. I was like, I'm, I'm really against these because I think it's an infringement of my privacy. And he said, all of his friends have them. And I said, well, does that freak you out in any way? And he said, no, we don't have privacy anymore. There's no privacy anymore. What happens to students when they have this expectation of not having any privacy anymore? Hmm. What happens to them? I mean, I think it is right that in a lot of ways, a lot of this has gotten normalized. You know, I was talking to a teacher at a school the other day and she said, you know, um, a couple of her kids were were horsing around and they were, you know, making some references to a video game. It was like a shooter video game or something. Um, and, and, and she came, went over them and was like, hey, you guys know that there's an audio recorder just outside this classroom right now that's recording everything you're saying. And like, 
um, you know, out of context, what you guys are saying could sound really scary, even though I, you know, as your teacher sitting in this room, know that, you know, this is really about you, you guys are horsing around and talking about video games and you're right. A lot, they kind of shrugged it off. She said, and she, and, and, um, and so I, you know, uh, I'm not sure. I think in some ways, um, that there is, you know, um, a danger around kind of having a chilling effect. I think, especially when we're thinking around kind of student activism or, um, uh, students kind of starting to organize, uh, around different issues. Um, I know some of the students that I have been working uh, with, uh, you know, definitely have had concerns around, um, um, their speech being taken out of context and used against them as they've organized for things like um, getting the police off their school campuses. But by and large, I think we also have to contend with this issue of how normal this has become um, and what that means um, uh, moving forward. Do we want to kind of proceed with this as a new normal uh, and have this next generation of kids not know any other way of going to school? Um, and, and what will that mean in terms of kind of a slippery slope for the continued expansion of this um, in, in years to come um, is a real concern. Because of the impact, not only just on these students, not only just on the parents, but what the impact will be on us as people who aren't in school. It's going to have an effect on us as well. You write in the school security sector, crisis is good for business. Scholars have argued that the adoption of security measures often stems from fear-based moral panics in the wake of a gruesome tragedy, such as a mass shooting, rather than from a careful examination of the evidence regarding school safety. So one of the things that we always, you know, hear is as soon as after the uh, shoot, mass shooting happens, all of a sudden a whole bunch of schools implement all sorts of surveillance and security systems. But do school shootings come in waves? And do school security providers exploit fear and exaggerate the need for school systems to act urgently in the wake of mass shootings elsewhere? So it, do these come in waves? Well, I mean, I think there are a number of crises that are actually really great for for the school security sector. I think school shootings are definitely one of them. Each time we ha we've had one of these, you know, the last um, really big one um, that grabbed headlines like like this one was in 2018. I'd say the Santa Fe High School shooting, which was in Texas, uh, which was the same year as Parkland. Um, so um, every time these happen, that certainly is, um, you know. Um, like a great opportunity for the sector, but there are also other crises that these um, uh, these vendors are able to take advantage of. So, for example, um, starting as early as you know 2001, in the wake of 9/11, we saw um, uh, the federal government provided these homeland security grants um, that also uh, you know uh, gave school districts money to. Um, try to, to, to invest in law enforcement officers and security equipment on their campuses because schools were identified as a uh, potential site for a terrorist attack. Uh, more recently, during the pandemic, we've also seen uh, federal and state funding for um, school districts to support them in getting their students through the pandemic uh, being pro um, appropriated or misappropriated for school security. A lot of these school security companies actually have uh, full-time staff members who are, are on staff in, in order to help um, school officials identify <laughs> uh, ways that they can use grant money for things like the pandemic uh, for school security. So we, they're very good at being able to um, identify 
uh, new pots of funding that come up when a crisis occurs, um, and then reappropriate that funding for school security. Uh, another great example in Texas is, you know, especially in the Gulf Coast area, where we've seen a lot of hurricanes, school districts have passed a number of multi-million dollar bonds. Um, a lot of those are for rebuilding schools that were um, destroyed or really um, damaged during hurricanes. Uh, so these bonds are usually framed as things that are um, to help rebuild infrastructure. Uh, but sometimes on the order of millions of dollars of that money uh, is going towards security infrastructure. Um, so, so, you know, inside, you know, a hundred million dollar school bond, you might see something like six or $7 million devoted to buying guns, uh, investing in facial recognition and, and, and hiring new law enforcement as part of this disaster relief funding. So those are all different kinds of crises that um, help this industry grow. You write that after Sandy Hook, President Obama signed an executive order that provided federal funding for more school resource officers, armed law enforcement personnel with the power to arrest students and the purchase of additional security equipment, despite the lack of evidence that such interventions reduce school violence or rates of crime on campus. You then quote criminologist Cheryl Johnson, arguing in a 2017 review of the existing literature, saying, even 17 years after the first major school shooting to make national headlines, the research examining the effectiveness of these measures is still lacking. Is there bipartisan support for subsidizing armed law enforcement personnel in schools who have the power to arrest students and the purchase of additional security and surveillance equipment? Do we have a political choice when it comes to unnecessarily policed schools? I, I do think there is bipartisan support. I do think it, you know, um, there, it, it just goes to kind of show, I think in these moments of crisis, these are, these are horrific events that happen, right? And, and they're uh, targeting, you know, some of our most precious citizens, our children. And, and so I think, you know, this, the demand for some sort of action is very high on both sides of the aisle. Everybody wants to see, wants to feel like we're doing something, right? Um, I think what would really benefit in pushing this conversation forward, though, is a careful examination of the evidence and also an investment in um, measuring the effectiveness of of, um, of different types of interventions. But from the, you know, uh, there's also some common sense here that if we could have a real frank conversation about it, I think would really... Um, um, there's some common sense interventions that we could do that I think would really help. And some of that is in, you know, investing in a school environment um, where uh, we, we getting rid of things like exclusionary discipline uh, practices for minor, you know, um, infractions in schools, like j policies that say, listen, we're not going to expel kids from school uh, for being tardy six times in a row, you know, um, it's things like investing in more support staff, like guidance counselors, uh, social workers and things like that. Um, and it's in, um, you know, investing in having, um, enhancing relationships between students and teachers, um, uh, which can come in a number of forms, uh, it can come in, in, in training for teachers and how to deal, um, with students that, um, might be struggling at home. Um, and connect and, you know, investing in resources for um, uh, for students who might be in crisis in various ways. Um, yeah. We are speaking with Chelsea Barabas, who wrote the reallifemag.com article, Hall Monitors Rather Than Protect Kids, Increased Surveillance in Schools Targets Students of Color, 
for exclusionary discipline. And that's the point that we want to get to now, as you were just mentioning it. You write, today, school security initiatives are driven largely by the goal of preemption, which has been used to justify ever more pervasive forms of surveillance that extend far beyond school gates. For example, most states now have cyberbullying laws that grant schools the authority to surveil students online, even when their behavior has no direct connection to school-related activities. So, Chelsea, how well-defined is cyberbullying? Do cyberbullying laws lead to surveillance of a few students, or is its scope greater than just select individuals? Yeah, I mean, so the cyberbullying laws started to come into effect in the the early 2000s. Um, and I think um, what a lot of them did was like they, they just opened up this opportunity for school authorities to start um, examining, you know, um, activities between students outside of school. And in some ways, in some places, that's actually mandated now, like it's considered negligent if school authorities are not actually, you know, um, uh, monitoring and taking into consideration um, student interactions online specifically. Um, and, um, I, you know, I think while the while the, some of the intentions there are good around, you know, issues of bullying and things like that, um, what we've seen is that there's a real slippery slope there, a lot of mission creep that can happen uh, with that. And again, it's just following this broader trend of like, we've got these headline grabbing tragedies that happen, things like, you know, young children committing suicide um, after, you know, and after the fact it's, it's revealed that they were the targets of, you know, chronic bullying in school. That's horrible. Um, uh, but then when we look at the day-to-day use of how these things are used, they're used to kind of, um, uh, for much more mo- mundane purposes, uh, things like, you know, regulating whether or not a student, you know, um, is, is violating some sort of minor code of conduct, um, uh, online. Um, and, and, um, so I, yeah, I think it, the issue is the same, um, and as, as kind of this broader issue around surveillance, um, cyberbullying is a, is a real issue. Um, but, uh, I think when you then end up putting uh, social media monitoring in the hands of people like ex-FBI agents, police officers, and things like that, people who are not necessarily equipped to identify or intervene on bullying, uh, what you end up seeing is that these types of interventions end up just criminalizing people for other types of behavior that don't have anything to do with bullying. So what harm can be done by social media monitoring? If threats that were carried out were posted online, wouldn't the school then be held accountable for not seeing so-called red flags and doing its best to protect their students? So what harm can be done by social media monitoring of students when they're not at school in, in activities that are unrelated to school? Sure. I mean, one thing that's important for us to think about is it is quite challenging to identify um, you know, um, threats that are made online because because things like mass school shootings are so rare, what you're likely to get is um, a system that's going to like put up a lot of red flags uh, and, and more red flags than your your personnel are actually going to be able to deal with. Uh, so there's going to be some selective kind of follow up <laughs> that happens. And, and the question is, who ends up who ends up being um, deemed risky or who, who do these um, security personnel end up following up on uh, to intervene on when they're getting kind of inundated with red flags, many of which are just kind of silly, you know, you know, kid, teenage, you know, social media posts. Um, what we've seen so far just from, 
you know, schools around the country is that a lot, again, kids um, such as like African-American kids are, are often the ones who end up getting targeted and, and deemed a threat um, for things that um, don't have, that really are what we might call a false positive, not, not a real threat uh, to school safety. So in the article, I quote um, from a, a report from the Southern Poverty Law Center, which found in places like Huntsville, Alabama, uh, African-American students were um, much more likely to be, uh, were, were the majority of the students who were actually uh, expelled from school as a result of social media monitoring. And, and one of the, um, one in one such case, there was a young girl who was expelled from school for five days uh, because a the security personnel uh, on staff uh, thought she might be a member of a gang. Uh, now, what was the reason for why he, she, he, the, he thought that? It's because she wore, wore a sweatshirt that had a, an image of her father uh, on it, and, and he had recently um, uh, died. And, and so um, he thought that that, that was uh, emblematic of somebody who might be in a gang. Um, and, and so those are the types of issues that we have to keep thinking about is like, who, who gets interpreted as a threat based on, you know, what they post online. Uh, and, um, and then what are the consequences from the fallout from that? In the Huntsville story that you were just mentioning, the person who identified the female student as a potential gang member and got her suspended just for wearing a picture of her father who had been slain by police, uh, you write that the person who was making that decision was a former FBI agent. So you would think that he would know better. To you, what explains such a mistake? After all, he's a it's a former FBI agent who was involved who should have known better. What do you what what does that reveal to you about the way that school surveillance is being done, especially when it's somebody who is a professional law enforcement agent. Oh, well, I, I mean, this is for me, one of the most interesting things is kind of looking at who are the people, who are the entrepreneurs <laughs> and like kind of actors in this space of school security. And what you see when we talk about, you know, militarized school surveillance, that word militarized is, is quite literal. We see a lot of people either from elite law enforcement agencies like uh, the FBI or the Secret Service um, coming into the sector, almost like a second career. We also see a lot of people from the military, you know, uh, veterans from uh, from Afghanistan or Iraqi Iraq uh, the the wars um, who now are pivoting towards um, school security. Um, and I think, you know, as a result, what we're seeing is a lot of <laughs> application of military tactics and a military mindset around kind of like counterinsurgency and things like that <laughs> that end up coming into these school settings um, in ways that I think are um, fraught with, uh, you know, a really trouble, like troubling, if you think about that, um, especially when we do look at and see that, you know, a lot of that is racially coded. I, I don't think any, but any of those people would say, you know, in any sort of overt way that they're, they, they think that, for example, black or Latinx kids are, are more of a threat. But when you actually look at their actions, um, or look at kind of, um, their their models for who do they think of as a threat? Um, as you as you mentioned earlier um, in the show, I, I, I quote a study in which law enforcement officers were surveyed, asking, "Okay, what's your your model for threat detection here? What do you think of as the biggest threat?" And what we saw was that in majority white schools, the law enforcement officers thought of threats as being an outsider scenario, somebody coming into the school and harming the students from within. But uh, law enforcement officers who were surveyed from predominantly um, uh, black schools, it was the exact opposite. It was thinking of the students themselves as the threat. 
And so those are the kinds of things we need to think about um, and thinking about how appropriate is it for military tactics uh, and elite law enforcement tactics from things like the Secret Service to now be applied to our schools in places where now the students themselves are considered, you know, the threat to be managed. So this is now the war on terror coming home applied to students here in the United States. Back in 2008, we had a conversation with historian Alfred McCoy, who told us that all of the technology that you were seeing being applied in the war on terror in Iraq, Afghanistan, all over the world, he was like, in no time, that is all going to come back here to the United States, and it's going to be turned on the citizens of the United States. That's what happens in the after effect of all wars, whatever we do overseas, we eventually turn on the, the citizens of the United States. What happens to a student, uh, the way that they perceive themselves, the way that they perceive their education when they are seen as a potential threat, when all students are seen as a potential threat by teachers, by staff members? What happens to the relationship between students, staff, and teachers? Mm. Well, I think a key um, a key thing that you said that sticks out is I don't think all students are seen as a threat, you know, and this is a key thing is like who ends up getting seen as a threat. And what I think what I fear with, um, you know, the introduction of these technologies is that it's just going to amplify trends that we've seen for a very long time. We've seen we've got tons of studies that show that black and brown kids are disproportionately dis disciplined uh, and seen as threats uh, as compared to their white counterparts. We know that um, black kids are disciplined more harshly for less serious infractions than their white counterparts. Um, and I, what, I, what I fear with this, the introduction of the surveillance is that's just gonna amplify these trends. Um, we're gonna see that now with you know, um, an eye in every corner of a school, um, uh, school officials are going to are, are going to be primed to be looking for and interpreting behaviors as dangerous or risky uh, much more frequently, but in ways that doesn't actually impact all students the same. Uh, and so, what I would expect to see is that an uh, uh, the uh, the discrepancy between uh, discipline statistics between white students and students of color is going to going to continue to grow um, and fuel this school to prison pipeline. When you mention uh, exclusionary discipline practices, all I could think of is, you know, to, well, in your opinion, to what extent are code of conduct rules, as they're called, mm -hmm. about an imposition of whiteness or institutional racism or sexism or genderism, for that matter? Is this about the imposition of whiteness and white traits upon those who are not white? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great, um, that is a great point, um, you know, in places like Texas, where I've been doing my research, we've seen that like upwards of 90% of the disciplinary action taken in schools are for this nebulous category of code of conduct violations. And this tends to be things like uh, dress code violations, um, uh, or um, uh, vague terms such as like, um, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to think of the exact term they use, something like disruptive conduct in a classroom, um, loudness in a hallway, you know, like uh, certain, uh, first off, not very serious infractions, but second off, things that um, do tend to be loaded with kind of normative expectations around how someone should dress, how loud someone should talk, um, um, yeah, how, how people should be interacting uh, with their, their teachers um, and with each other. Uh, that have, you know, um, 
you know, uh, you know, are, are actually not usually coded as racialized, but do tend to be things like white normative expectations or cisgender expectations, um, uh, that, um, that end up then, you know, having, um, uh, an impact more on students who don't fit those expectations. Um, so I, I think that's a great point. Um, I think the gendered ones are also, you know, uh, we also do see that, uh, kids who are gender nonconforming also do tend to be disproportionately, uh, um, uh, disciplined for, um, these also, these code of conduct violations, um, for not meeting, not fitting the mold. So is security and surveillance, is it more about keeping the students safe or is it more about the school having expanded social control over students' lives, whether it's in school or outside of school? I think it's about keeping some kids safe, you know, or or at least creating the feeling that we're keeping some kids safe, which again is not all kids and does tend to be unlabeled as like white suburban affluent kids um, at the sacrifice of non-white not affluent uh, inner city kids um, or or kids who are non-white and not affluent who attend those suburban schools. Um, and I, I think, you know, as you're saying, uh, yeah, I, the reality is that what the, we, the jury is still very much out if, if these things are effective at all. Um, but what we do know is that there's a growing mountain of evidence that indicates that this is increasing kind of the authoritarian nature of kind of the school environment um, and um, definitely extending the reach not only of school authorities, but law enforcement through the school setting um, into not only the classroom, but students' lives at home. Um, But we think about all these algorithms, and you point out this in your article, we, we think of all these things as very objective because it's being put into a computer, a computer is looking at it, they, they don't see a person who is white or black or any color, they just see figures, they just see numbers, and therefore this must be objective. In your opinion, does more surveillance necessarily mean more racism, and not only in schools? How much does increased surveillance with newer Internet of Things technologies actually lead to increased racism? Well, you know, one of the the common um, reactions from school security companies when when they encounter criticisms about their work being, you know, racist or having racial implications is that they do lean heavily on um, the statistical or technical specifications of their tools. They'll, they'll cite things like, um, you know, how accurate their tool performs across different racial categories, you know, how, how, um, um, how accurately is the tool able to, for example, identify a dark skinned face, uh, as compared to a light skinned face. Um, and I think, you know, that while in, in some ways this seems like we might be making progress by, you know, demanding things like equal levels of accuracy across these different racial categories. I, I, I um, I also am concerned that, you know, that that might actually serve as a distraction towards like addressing some of these deeper issues around, you know, the actual real world impact of how these get used. It's not just about, you know, um, statistical performance of these tools and, and whether or not literally they can see different shades of skin color. It's at the end of the day, all about how do these tools get used? How are they embedded in broader cultures of discipline and interpretive lenses uh, for who looks like a threat versus who deserves protection? Um, And so, um, 
I, I, I actually forget if, what your actual question was, but I hope I answered it. If not, yeah, you did. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, just one of the, a couple things I want to ask you about school funding of this. Can yeah. ending government subsidization of school surveillance and security, can that end school surveillance and security? How dependent is the private sector of the school security, the school security sector? How dependent is it on federal incentivization as well as subsidization? I think, yeah, I mean, federal, um, public funds in general, federal and state are a major source of, of you know, uh, schools are public institutions, public schools are. And so, so a lot of that funding does come from, um, you know, uh, grants, executive orders, things like that, um, that are uh, managed through the federal and state governments. So I, I and, and as I was mentioning before, these companies have wisened up to that. They, they now have full-time staff that help schools or even do navigate uh, the grant making process on behalf of schools. Um, and so um, I think what we'd benefit from, I don't know if we necessarily need to cut um, funding for school security. I do think school security is important. I think what we need to do is redefine what school security looks like and, and put in better specifications for what types of interventions this money can be used for, um, as well as placing moratoria on things that aren't effective and don't work. So for example, the state of New York um, just recently in, in the last um, year or so, uh, put a moratorium on biometric uh, surveillance tools being used in schools. Um, I think those types of things are also really helpful. So we can we need to do a better job of identifying and defining what works and allotting money for those things. And then we need to place moratoria on the things that we think are doing more harm than good. Just a few more questions for you. Back in the 80s, there was the exaggerated threat of stranger danger, when in reality, as you've pointed out, the greatest threat is actually not from strangers, but people the children know, including family members. Why does it seem like generation after generation after generation, they all exa exaggerate security threats to children? Is it just because it's politically popular and exploitable? What, what explains to you this continuous, every 30, 20, 30 years, a different form of exaggerated security threats to children? I mean, I think it's just, I mean, we really care about our kids, right? I, I think that this, you know, um, the strong emotional um, uh, instinct to protect our children um, it can be exploited to, to, to profitable ends. Um, and so, you know, although, it, it, you know, if we want to look at the statistics and kind of break down the numbers and really understand things like, okay, wh where are kids you know, most likely to be harmed or die, um, you know, uh, schools do not rank up there at all. You know, they're most likely, you know, to, to, to be murdered at home. <laughs> um, uh, their kids are more likely to die from pool drownings or bicycle accidents and they are from school, you know, incidences of school violence. But when we, when we have incidences like these mass shootings happen, we, we see the we see the fear spike and the money flood in and so i think that's you know at, at least um what's happening here within the school sector um but i think in general you know this tendency of um you know just things that that it, it, for the news you know the news um industry as well
you know, um, horror cells, <laughs> people click on stories around, you know, uh, strangers kidnapping a pretty little girl from a playground. Uh, the, that headline is uh, much more uh, lucrative down the line than a headline around, you know, um, a father running off with his his kid because in a during a nasty divorce, you know, which is much more common in terms of kidnapping and things like that. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I think it comes down to money and in the way that horror and our, our emotions can be exploited. One last question for you, Chelsea. We've been speaking with Chelsea Barabas, who wrote the reallifemag.com article, Hall Monitors, Rather Than Protect Kids, Increase Surveillance in School Targets, Students of Color for Exclusionary Discipline. One last question for you, Chelsea. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, these tools do not exist in a vacuum when it comes to these surveillance tools that base their, uh, are based on algorithms. Every day, more examples emerge of the ways technically fair systems are routinely used in harmful ways. Algorithms designed to allocate healthcare resources to patients systematically discriminate against black people. Efforts to modernize large bureaucratic systems lead to the exclusion of thousands of poor people for essential social services. So why is it so difficult to take the racism and classism out of algorithms? Can there be a non-racist, non-classist, non-sexist algorithm free of bias of any kind, as long as human beings have those biases. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I'm, a lot of people think about bias in terms of kind of like implicit bias and like, you know, oh, as human beings, we have these biases we're not even aware of. And those end up creeping into these algorithms, which I think is true. But I also think that at the end of the day, this is also bias in a lot of ways is about power. And, and the question is, who has these algorithms and, and who are implementing these? So I think as long as we have, you know, elites are the people who have the both the technical expertise and the resources to design and implement these tools um that and we're talking about corporate elites government elites um yeah social and political elites as long as those are the folks who are defining the problems to be solved with algorithms and then designing the solutions to them i think we're going to see uh, an exacerbation of the power asymmetries that we've that are age old that, that you were just mentioning um, I don't think it's inevitable or necessarily a byproduct of the technology itself. It's a matter of in, in whose hands is that technology being wielded. Um, but if we if we saw more ground up, uh, you know, um, efforts to define the agenda, define the problems, and then use technology wherever it's appropriate, um, I don't think you know it, it's that algorithms are inherently going to be biased. Um, we'd see a very different result. Chelsea, thank you so much for being on the show today. This really is a fantastic article. Thank you so much for being on our show. Check out our article at reallifemag.com. Again, hall monitors rather than protect kids, increase surveillance in schools, targets students of color for exclusionary discipline. Thank you so much for being on our show, and enjoy your weekend. Thank you so much. All right. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is Hell. This week's question from Hell is, well, Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell? And tell us how some of our listeners are responding so far. Oh, where's my... There we go. Okay, Bill Evans. Weird things. This week's question... Yeah, I think uh, we just dropped out right at the end. Uh, this week's question from Hell is... Perfect timing. 
what did the oracle just reveal to you? What did the oracle just reveal to you? <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to get Jeff on the line at the same time, too. Uh, and that piano player, man, he's really hitting those keys. <laughs> Via DM, Adam B says 12, 13, 17, 18, 69, 2. <laughs> Greg G says work won't love you back. <laughs> What did the Oracle just reveal to you? Edison K says, the hero destined to save us reuse, refused the call to adventure. That was literally decades ago. Okay. Kim G says, the one true hangover cure. <laughs> what will we do every Monday? Uh, Ronaldo M says, next week's winning lotto number. But I think she was lying. <laughs> Somebody else offered the actual winning number there. That was really nice. Anything else? Uh, that's it for now. Okay. Uh, we got a couple of Twitter replies. We can do that after we get uh, Jeffy on. Yeah. Uh, here is he. He's, in, he's entering the waiting room. One sec. Uh, so you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com. You can tweet it to us at chuck it, uh, at thisishellradio. And uh, we're going to be reading some more of your answers following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff rings down the curtain on 2021, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt you can subscribe to our patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell because become a subscriber to this is hell on patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly patreon podcast which streams live every friday podcast shortly after at the same place on last monday's show we spoke with neil valelli who is the author of utilitarianism neoliberalism and the production of uselessness neil writes that the state's demand of neoliberal conformity from its citizens makes it so we can no longer find an avenue for collective expression. This reinvention of the social has enabled neoliberalism to undercut most democratic values, not by eradicating dem democracy per se, but by howling out the essence of democratic institutions so that all that is left is a mirage. And this week we kept staring at that mirage all week, whether it was with Ava Kaufman's investigation of poison in the air and chemical plants poisoning their neighbors, while we have an EPA that does not conduct minimal oversight and uh, that does conduct minimal oversight and is not given the resources for enforcement, working with the Clean Air Act that legally allows polluters to monitor, to not monitor their uh, already polluting uh, substances. That mirage appeared again on Tuesday in the form of privatized nature conservation, working with the federal government to circumvent locals in Kankakee County, just 60 mile, miles south of Chicago, that do not want a national wildlife refugee in their already impoverished neighborhood. And again, it came up today in our conversation with Chelsea on students being taught in schools that uh, look look like the outcome of an authoritarian police state and certainly not like education facilities you'd expect to see or find in a democracy. We don't live in a democracy, but some sort of simulation of a democracy, a performance, a theme park that does everything it can to convince us we live in a democracy. But this is not a democracy now or ever. This is hell. We're also sharing an interview, and that interview might be one we did with a writer over at Brat Magazine immediately following the Columbine shootings because uh, they were on to remind us back in 1999 while CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox, all of the media, corporate establishment media outlets were saying that school shootings were on the rise. Brat Magazine was reminding us that the Centers for Disease Control told us that, in fact, those were on the decline. Now, we don't know the state of that interview because it's from way back in 1999. So if we don't play that, we're going to be playing an interview we did 15 years ago when we talked with uh, Asli Bali, who was on to discuss a couple of issues that really haven't changed over the last 15 years. One is the U.S.-Iranian nuclear deal, and the other one is the uh, disgust that the Israeli government has with 
international law and the way that they flaunt it. But if you want to hear how I am trying to see past the mirage that is U.S. democracy under neoliberalism and maybe somebody talking about school shootings from 1999 or what we were covering 15 years ago to the day that hasn't really seemed to change that much, all you have to do is subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. One more time. How they live now. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Another hellish year struggles to its end, like a wounded ape clawing its way through the desert on its belly. How was the ape wounded? It was shot by a mob of hooligan humans. They weren't even aiming at the ape. They were just firing randomly at nature itself. In the process, besides wounding the ape, they set the forest ablaze. All the forest animals fled to the adjacent desert, called the Desert of Refuse, a flat expanse punctuated across its wastes by abandoned large household appliances, also known as durable goods, also known as major purchases. Each miniature tin monument guards its area of the wasteland like a dead sentinel. Now they survey blindly a landscape littered with dead or dying animals. Looking down from on high is the towering fossil fuel industry presiding over it all. It is a mountain range spread across the horizon like a bat's spread wings. No one can even imagine getting over that range now. On the other side might be anything. There might be a world of justice and compassion, or there might be a sprawling pit full of monsters. Back in the fiery forest, hooligan humans shoot off their guns in the air and in every direction, the traditional hooligan declaration of resentment. What are they resentful about? They believe animals in forests now have more rights than they do, because animals can marry each other and hooligans can't. Or rather, hooligans can, but they still don't want animals to marry each other. They want animals to remain single and lonely, and likewise trees. Also, they resent that birds can apply for library cards. None ever has. There's no guarantee a bird's application for a library card would ever be accepted, and the hooligans don't actually patronize libraries, but the entire principle of non-humans having any ability to do anything simply rubs hooligans the wrong way. The fire creates clouds of swirling smoke, eddies of smoke in the heat's convection currents, now whirlwinds of smoke, now tornadoes of smoke. The hooligans fire into the smoke tornadoes in a hopeless attempt to murder them. But the tornadoes swallow the bullets, swish them around in their mouths for a bit, and then spit them back out. The bullets rip off chunks of hooligan flesh and bone, flinging pieces of hooligan every which way. This only further enrages the hooligans. How dare the smoke tornadoes spit back bullets fired at them with the intent of killing them? Is this what smoke tornadoes consider civilized? Is this how smoke tornadoes intend to behave once they outnumber hooligans? And make no mistake... One dreaded day, smoke tornadoes are going to outnumber hooligans. It's demographically inevitable. Smoke tornadoes are multiplying around the world at a pace hooligan procreation can't hope to match. Not as sexually repulsive as hooligans find each other. Hooligans must mate outside the hooligan race. And hooligans are embarrassed and rueful of this fact. They are one neurotically deformed bunch, those hooligans. Except for their leader, hooligans esteem each other as equals, or at least that is the way they behave. 
No one hooligan is better than any other. This egalitarianism is reflected in the objects and institutions they choose to destroy, which is all of them and everything, and in the reasoning behind the destruction. When hooligans come upon a piano, for example, the swift rationale goes as follows. Several of our mob cannot play the piano. Therefore, the piano is an instrument of our oppression. It must be destroyed. And the hooligans shoot the piano until their bullets and buckshot have whittled it down to sawdust, pedals, soundboard, and various gauges of string. When the hooligans come upon a female human outside their ranks, they declare her an oppressor, because most among them are not free and welcome to access her vulva. She is then either shot or such access is forced, after which she is stigmatized for being dirty and then shot. It's speculated that similar reasoning goes for the hooligans' random slaughter of schoolchildren, although this remains conjecture. The hooligans wander from object to object, institution to institution, situation to situation, declaring it unfair, even though many such institutions, situations, and objects were originally created by and in order to serve them exclusively. As for their leader, who does no leading per se, he, or sometimes she, but most often he, merely gives public voice to their complaints and rationale, mimicking in clownish fashion the orators of older, more legitimate movements or older, similarly worthless and destructive movements. The value of the past movement whose orator the leader is imitating, alters randomly, without warning, and sometimes in the middle of pronouncing a word. At times the leader imitates entertainers and performing artists, artists whose talent and skill the leader will never attain. His uniform failures nevertheless always elicit cheers and laughter from the great audiences of hooligans who never fail to gather to listen, except during times when the fear of the plague gets the better of them, despite their insistence that no plague has ever existed except as a fabrication meant to oppress them. The ocean is also considered an enemy to the hooligans and their as yet unspecified way of life. When the hooligans first encountered the ocean, their legends say, the ocean laughed at their personal watercraft, because such boats and sea-dews, while small, exhibited signs of obesity. It is not our personal watercraft's fault they are obese, the hooligans present at this legendary meeting with the ocean complained. They are just big-boned and enjoy a good time at Tony Roma's, TJ Friday's, and Fuddruckers. But the sea continued to mock them, saying, those establishments suck a bag of dicks. The hooligans then and there decided one day to set the ocean boiling, and on that day they would use it to cook their bratwursts. Now, of course, the boiling ocean is choked with myriad objects that have offended the hooligans by outlasting their utility to them. The cosmos itself is an object of collective hooligan ire. Of what is the cosmos guilty? According to the hooligans, the cosmos has committed the following crimes. It was created by God, but it doesn't seem to require God to continue operating. It behaves as if God could exist or not exist, and it couldn't seem to be able to care less whether God exists or not. It causes a multitude of events to occur which fly in the face of what hooligans believe. It has given rise to all the phenomena that offend and oppress hooligans. The mascot of the hooligans is a combination God-man who is called Jesus, who is called the Christ. The story goes that Jesus was once a poor man who gathered the poor and outcast of humanity and told them the world belonged to them.
For spreading this troubling message, Jesus was executed by the state. But then he rose from the dead and transfigured into a king who now despises the poor and outcast. According to hooligan theology, their mascot's disdain for those to whom the social stigma of poverty has been shackled gives the hooligans carte blanche to punish anyone evincing those traits. The punishments hooligans are mandated to dole out vary from refusing to offer succor and charity to depriving the accused of what food and shelter they are able to organize for themselves through to exterminating the offenders in great numbers. At the moment, the hooligans have destroyed so much of the earth's creatures and beauty that they have been reduced to a rampaging mob amidst a massive forest fire, shrieking their curses and shooting at smoke tornadoes. None of that matters to the ape, however, pulling itself across the gravelly ground under a smoke-hazy sky, heaving out its last breaths, its last ounces of blood, streaking the desert behind it. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day! I love your Michigan accent. <laughs> what? Uh, you didn't do this probably when you were living in Michigan, but <laughs> there is a Michigan accent. I've had people from Michigan tell me, I can't believe President Bush, President George W. Bush, says mm -hmm. nuclear when he says nuclear. And then that <laughs> same person will tell me in this, this sentence, they'll say, you know what that's similar to? <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people say nuclear these days. Yeah, they're I saying really... it a lot more nowadays, ever since uh, everybody wanted to correct themselves and make themselves better than President George W. Bush, which isn't too hard. But that's similar. That's uh, still lingering <laughs> out there. Wait, nuclear is the right way to pronounce nuclear it. Nuclear is. Nu nuclear is. Nuclear. Nuclear is correct. Nuclear is incorrect. You are correct. That See, is correct. It gets me all screwed up because of similar. <laughs> similar freaks me out. It's similar just freaks me out. You know me. what? My bugbear is mischievous. There is no word mischievous. No, there is. What does it come from? Mischievy? I don't know. Oh, there's those mischievy people. Mischievous. Mischievous people. Look at the spelling. Look at the spelling. Sound it out. <laughs> I know English is tough because of the GHs and the weirdness and the how you can spell fish and several funny ways uh i don't know anything else you want to mention i mean only one more moment of truth jeffy before the end of the oh. year oh i thought this was the last one no nope. next week we got one more oh damn it <laughs> i'm gonna do this one again uh um i was ringing down the curtain on 2021 That's okay you can uh, ring in the curtain for the next thing how about that one next year i'm gonna call it uh an end of daylight savings time, maybe? That's why I failed to note the... <laughs> I don't know. You got a daylight savings calendar that goes a week ahead? <laughs> nice. It's, well, I, uh, there's a spring of fall ahead, fall of spring behind. <laughs> yeah. Seasonal savings time. Yeah, it's very, very confusing. All right, Jeffy. <laughs> yes? Until next time. What? Stay beautiful. Oh, okay. I can do that. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Alex, please remind our listening audience, what is this week's question from Hell? And tell us how our listeners are answering this week's question. A couple more responses. What is? Oh, sorry. What did the Oracle just reveal to you? What did the Oracle just reveal to you? Meringue420 says, boobs. <laughs> 
Spectacular says the secret knock for the bar where they serve the greatest old fashioned on earth. I should have asked for the address though. Oh, I have the address to that place. Garlic, garlic <laughs> fan account says plans for an exhausting Thursday night. And a couple more. Uh, what did the Oracle reveal to you? Giga Grouch says the Oracle told me you can't have too many eagles. Joel G says, duh, this is hell. And finally, Hypocrite Reader, thank you for the honey and the mulberries and the walnuts. Sulfurous fumes are a hell of a drug. <laughs> so the answers I liked most were, again, to this week's question from hell, what did the oracle just reveal to you? I liked Kim G saying the one true hangover cure. Uh, Fergus saying that 2022 is going to be great. I had to pay extra for her to say it, though. Alex B saying she looked up from the bowl and said, yikes, dude. Dan K saying her fear of commitment. What did the Oracle just reveal to you? No, Wack said she wants to sue Oracle for not being an Oracle, and I'm convinced her cause is just. Jeremy saying that people prefer to believe things that reinforce their delusions. Crap, this is supposed to be funny and clever, right? Damn it. And Greg saying work won't love you back. Any of those that really stick out to you, Alex? Oh, sorry. One more flying needle. I didn't get to flying needles. Uh, my oracular wisdom shall not save you. You are still effed. Enjoy <laughs> your demise, sucker. <laughs> it's a pretty good one. I'm going to go with Alex. Uh, Alex B. saying that the oracle looked up from her bowl and said, Yikes, dude. <laughs> That's probably, if I saw the oracle, exactly what the oracle would reveal to me. Yikes, dude. Congratulations, Alex. Just send us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you would like us to send you. Just tell us which one you want. Any piece of This Is Hell merchandise, any piece of swag you can find right now by going to thisishell.com when you click on support, and we will get that piece of merchandise to you as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question from Hell, what did the Oracle just reveal to you? The Oracle just revealed to me my third eye, which is also legally blind. The Oracle also revealed that the Oracle gets far better weed than I do. But if you're sitting around all day on a stool above a pile of burning weed and you give out such great insight that people call you an Oracle, you deserve far better weed than I do. Remember, as far as we know, the first celebrity stoner was the Oracle at Delphi, who was portrayed by Sean Penn as Jeff Spicoli in 1982's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Look it up. It's true. That's who he's portraying, the Oracle at Delphi. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Alex, do we have anyone scheduled yet for next week's set of shows? Yeah, so on Monday, Martin Bilheimer will be on to talk about his book, Mother Chicago, Truant Dreams and Specters Over the Gilded Age. Age. And then on Tuesday, Dr. Max Libouron will be on to talk about their nature article, Decolonializing Geoscience Requires More Than Equity and Inclusion. That sounds Still working on Wednesday. Great. Uh, the geoscience art article I'm really looking forward to reading for next week. So we start every week's live stream. Jeff's going to be back on Thursday with a moment of truth that he wasn't expecting to do. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover here. And this week's hangover here is a the ultimate hangover cure, a fried fish finger sandwich. And by the way, for 2021, it's actually the pen ultimate hangover cure. 
Thanks to this week's guests, including Ava Kaufman, co-author of Poison in the Air, the EPA allows polluters to turn neighborhoods into sacrifice zones. Thanks to yesterday's guest, Tony Briscoe, who wrote the ProPublica article, Conservationists See Rare Nature Sanctuaries, Black Farmers See a Legacy Bought Out from Under Them. And thanks to today's guest, Chelsea Barabas, who wrote the reallifemag.com article, Hall Monitors, rather than protect kids, increase surveillance in schools, target students of color for exclusionary discipline. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Richard Norwood for running the board this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. Rinala Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Special thanks to Theron Humiston just because. Talk to you Friday on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I will be staring at the mirage that is U.S. democracy. And we'll either be sharing an interview from 1999 uh, from a writer at Brat Magazine who was telling us about how the mass shootings were not increasing here in the United States, as everybody was reporting immediately following Columbine, which was not true. Or we might be sharing an interview from 15 years ago to the day with Asla Bali on U.S.-Iran nuclear talks that find themselves at about the exact same place today and Israel's displeasure with international law, law which, again, is about exactly where it was 15 years ago. Who knew both stories would be evergreen? Oh, yeah, everybody who was paying attention. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There is only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. They made a magazine about the Subaru Brat? No. My God. demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my no. demon talks to me a profanity like a sailor. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.